One of my pet peeves in the Sunday readings is that oftentimes there's verses that have been left out. Sometimes, to me at least, the missing verses are as important and sometimes more important than the verses that have been included. But they really jumped the shark today because in the first reading we're not missing verses, we're missing five and a half chapters. We hear Abraham getting a promise from God that he will be a dad. That's at the beginning of chapter 15 of Genesis. Then all of a sudden we skip five and a half chapters to the beginning of chapter 21 where God gives him a son. But what happened in between is not less important. If anything, perhaps it's one of the first soap operas in human history. God had made the promise to Abraham. And the second reading, the letter to the Hebrews, fills in the blanks. <clears throat> Abraham found there to be one God when others believed there were many. Abraham believed the one God to be trustworthy. And so when the Lord said, set out to a land I will show you, 80-year-old Abraham did that without question, comment, or delay. Little did he know that it was going to be 600 miles through the desert from Iraq to what they then called Canaan. Today we call it Israel. And early on in that journey, Abraham started to ask God, what's in it for me? What kind of prize do I get for being so faithful to you? And by this point, Abram had a grave concern. He was 80. His wife was younger than him, but still advanced in years, and they had no children. He believed her to be sterile, barren, and that was thought by many to be a curse from God. What on earth you must have done if God would prevent you from having any offspring? And that was critically important to God's chosen people, because before the resurrection, the only way a man felt he lived on after death was to preserve his family name, his bloodline. That was his legacy, and Abraham didn't have one. He thought he was going to have to leave everything to Eleazar, his servant. But God said, no, I've got a greater plan for you and through you. I will make you a father of many nations. That's the beginning of chapter 15. God doesn't fulfill the promise until chapter 21. What happens in between? Enter Sarah, Abraham's wife. When he tells her what God has planned for them, what was her reaction? To laugh at Abraham and to laugh at God. She did not think this was plausible or even possible. She then decided, well, if God said we should be parents and we haven't been, let's force the outcome. Let's take matters into our own hands. At the beginning of chapter 16, Sarah decides that Abraham should have relations with Sarah's slave, Hagar. That way, surely he will become a father and will begin to fulfill God's promise. Abraham does what Sarah says, and that's where the soap opera begins. Because even though it was Sarah's idea in the first place, and Abraham only did what she recommended, when Hagar becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son named Ishmael, all of a sudden, Sarah's mad at Abraham. She's jealous of Hagar, and she hates that child and wants them cast out of their household. In the midst of all of this, what is God's reaction? He could have said, Abraham and Sarah, I'm done with you. You are fornicators, and you are not faithful to me or to each other. Let's choose someone else to have descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. But as proof that God is faithful even when we are not to him or to each other, he doesn't withdraw the covenant. He doesn't remove the promise. He even blesses Hagar and Ishmael, but he especially blesses Abraham and Sarah, even though they got off at the wrong exit on the freeway. God has still taken them on the highway to heaven, but they're going to have to wait for it. Sarah had refused to wait. That's why she had first taken matters into her own hands. And God makes them wait and wait and wait some more. If Abraham was 80 when the promise was made, Abraham was 100 
when the promise was fulfilled. That's the beginning of chapter 21. But God still has a card to play. He decides the name. He doesn't let them choose it. And he says their son will be named Isaac. Why? Because in Hebrew, Itzhak, Isaac, means laughter. Just think, poor Sarah. Every time she called her child in from the fields, wash up for dinner, stop messing around, she had to call him by the very reaction she had in God's plan, that she and Abraham would indeed become parents, and through them there would be children as numerous as the stars of the sky or the sands in the desert. Abraham and Sarah, God made them a promise. God made them a prophecy. He was going to fulfill both for them, in them, and through them. They just had to wait for it. They couldn't force the outcome. And that's really the same thing for that first advent of God's chosen people in Israel. In more than a thousand years between Moses and Jesus, one patriarch, prophet, and judge after another, pointing the way for the coming of the Lord, calling the people to repentance. But they had to wait. Generations came. Generations went. Still, there was no Messiah. Some people began to lose faith. Maybe God is never going to send his son to save us and set us free. And then when it was at its darkest and all seemed lost, God fulfilled his greatest promise, his greatest prophecy, to send himself into the flesh, lowering himself from heaven to earth, the rich becoming poor, in order that we might become rich. That's the Christmas story. That's the Holy Family at Nazareth. And that's where we find them today, Joseph and Mary, 40 days after Jesus' birth in the second chapter of Luke, making their way up to the temple at Jerusalem, doing everything that the Jewish law and the Hebrew scriptures required of them. And it said that after the mother's period of purification is ended, we must take the child and go up to the temple to present him to God. Because they're the parents. God is the giver of life. He is the creator. And they make a sacrifice to thank him for a healthy birth. The scripture said it should be two turtle doves, or if you're poor, you can bring two pigeons. Mary has the word of God in her hand. Joseph has two pigeons, reminding us of the extreme poverty of the holy family. He who is so wealthy entered into the poverty of our humanity to make us wealthy forever with him in his kingdom. But inasmuch as they're carrying out all the dictates of the law, one thing Joseph and Mary didn't know and couldn't have expected was who was waiting for them, the welcoming committee of the temple. Simeon and Anna had been there fasting and praying by this point for decades, decades, waiting to see God fulfill his greatest promise, waiting to see the face of God. And as soon as Mary, Joseph, and Jesus enter into that temple, they realize we are looking at him. And even though they'd never met before, Simeon wants to hold that baby, and Mary trusts him, and she lets him. And then Simeon cries out his great hymn of praise, Lord, you may let your servant go in peace. My eyes have seen my salvation. Simeon believed he was holding heaven in his hands. But then things took a turn. Remember, he's a prophet, not a priest. He has a message for Mary. He tells her what's going to become of her child. Now, parents, when they show off their baby, they want to hear how cute the child is, how much she looks like her mother, but she's got her dad's eyes. They want to hear this child is going to grow up to do great things. We're talking professional athletes, presidents, prime ministers, whatever the case may be. No one wants to hear, everybody hates your baby, and they're actually going to murder him. And yet that was Simeon's message for Mary. 
that her heart would be pierced by a sword, and any time you see an image of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, that dagger is sticking right out of it. He was informing her that God's greatest gift was about to become God's greatest sacrifice, himself, for the forgiveness of sins, the destruction of death, and the salvation of the world. Could Mary have said it would be better to have no child at all than to have a child that's only going to be murdered? Herod was already trying to kill him, even before he was born. He had a target painted on his back for the 33 years he walked the earth. And Mary, who cherished the baby who was in her arms, knows now that one day she will hold him again when he is taken down from the cross. But Mary, she had to continue to trust that it's God's plan, not hers. It's on his timetable, not mine. It's his will, not ours. And if it is his will, that it can only be for a greater purpose, heaven and happiness. And so she and Joseph would have to continue to do their best. And on this Feast of the Holy Family, that's what we find so remarkable. Their double duty, total devotion to God the Father, total devotion to God the Son, and they didn't fail at either task. And that is why they become the model for our relationships, the model for our homes, the model for our families. When we find ourselves in a relationship that's in crisis, our marriages are breaking apart, uh, with parents and grandparents who lament that their children don't practice the faith, people who can't get along or don't want to see each other, we turn to the quiet, we come back to the crib, and we look at Mary and Joseph, and how even though they knew that God's plan was going to cost them everything, they trusted that a brighter light would shine through their darkness and that greater reward awaited them for any suffering or sacrifice that they might have to make. God was going to make a greater one, and he has made a greater one for the holiness and the happiness of your family and mine. We just have to stick together at the foot of the cross, knowing that one day those crosses we bear will become the crowns of glory.